How many of you like to wait? You don't have to raise your hand because you just, I'd call you out for not telling the truth probably. I am terrible at it, okay? I just, I'm not, what? I didn't expect that. Okay. We'll talk about that some more. Just wait, okay? Just wait. And you wait, too. (laughs) We'll discuss this further. Yeah. So, um, man's politics, God's king. As we kick off this second half of Samuel's account here, beginning in 2 Samuel, uh, we come to what in many ways seems like the place where David has sought to be, the place where he's waited on God to bring him, and yet the waiting still continues. Um, And so as we begin chapter 2 here, um, really what is going to happen over the next three or four chapters, it could well go together because it is um, a picture of what happens when God's kingdom comes in direct contrast with man's kingdom. What happens when God's people wait on God as opposed to the political ambitions, the selfish ambitions, the power struggles that so often happen in, in the world. Um, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to play out over these next few chapters here. Frequently in the Psalms, as JT read earlier as we sung, David declares, I will wait for you. That's his prayer to God. That's his, that's his word to God. And often he testifies to others of what that waiting looks like in his own life and how we together should wait. And he said, my soul waits on God. And this is, I think, one of the distinguishing characteristics of David. And one of those that I know we have to be real careful where we moralize passages and take personal applications out of the personalities of people. That's hard to do. It's not always wise to do that. But waiting on God is, for the most part, a distinguishing characteristic of David. And he has been waiting a long time and will wait longer. We need to keep that in mind, that from the time David was probably, well, commentators aren't real sure he could have been as young as 13, 14, or 15 in 1 Samuel, when Samuel comes and anoints him to be the king one day. Later on, we'll see in 2 Samuel where he was 30 years old when he actually took the throne, if you will, of the United Kingdom. So he's been waiting anywhere from 15, 16, 17 years for God to fulfill his promise and for these things to come about. And so when it seems like the opportunity to take that throne presents itself after Saul's death, when it seems like there's a finally a clear path, David doesn't rush in. He doesn't just rush in and grab hold of what God has promised him. He waits. And what that waiting look like, looks like is, is what we have here in the beginning part of chapter 2. And it's going to be in stark contrast to what's going to come later in the rest of the chapter and in passages that follow in. So let's look at the first portion of chapter 2 together. After this, so this is after he's heard word of Saul's death 
after the episode that we see unfold there in chapter 1, where the Lamanite just really did not understand David at all. He did not understand what David was motivated by or how he could earn David's good favor or graces. We saw how that happened. And then he laments, this beautiful lament from Saul and Jonathan. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, to Carmel, of Carmel, excuse me. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you have showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. What does it look like to wait? Specifically, what does it look like to wait on God's promises? What does it look like to wait on our King Jesus to fulfill all of the plans and purposes that God has laid out for us in the Scripture? In this redemptive story that you read about in the little track, in this redemptive story that we have the opportunity to share with neighbors who come to us in an event like tonight, And say, in the midst of all this brokenness, in the midst of all this hurt, in the midst of the mess of this world, this is what God has promised. And we have that good news to share with them. But it's not yet. So how do we wait? Well, I think there's some principles here that apply to us as we see them in the life of David. We are certain that God's promises are sure. Amen? So we wait prayerfully. What I mean by that is we pray based on the fact that God keeps his promises, right? We pray based on the fact that God has offered to us to hear us as we come to him and pray. Now, we're not told specifically how David inquired of the Lord. But that phrase, David inquired of the Lord, is a phrase that marks him both in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel. And so we're not told exactly what he did to bring this request to God or ask God this question. Did he go to the priest? Did they use the ephod and the the urim and the thummim, you know? We don't really even know how that works. Did they cast lots? We are not told exactly how, and it doesn't matter. God spoke in the Old Testament quite frequently, we see, directly to his servants. He doesn't do that. This way, he doesn't do that now, not in the same way. David inquired of the Lord, and ever since the Spirit rushed on David in 1 Samuel 16, he has shown this pattern of seeking God's will and God's direction. Even when things seemed obvious, he did that. So, here he inquires of the Lord, and he will continue to demonstrate that hallmark as he goes. 
I had a phone call last weekend from uh, from one of our young people, one of our college students. And uh, he called. I knew he was engaged. I knew he'd gotten engaged. And he texted me on Friday morning and said, I need to call you later on this afternoon. I got some exciting news to share with you. And I knew what the news was. But he said, I'll call you this afternoon. So he called. And I said, hey, what's up? He said, well, I need to ask you to pray about something. And he told me, he said, we'd be honored if you'd do our premarital counseling and conduct our wedding. And I said, I don't need to pray about that. I mean, I know I would be honored to do it. What's your date? Yes, that's my answer. And then I dive in some more to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And see, David inquired of the Lord about something that's really as obvious as the nose on his face. He cannot stay where he's at. He cannot stay in this town. It's been decimated by the Philistines. It's been destroyed. He doesn't want to stay in a Philistine territory. He obviously needs to leave. But he prays about it. And I really haven't prayed about you know, Luke's wedding, I'm going to do it, I'm excited about it, and we'll pray as that unfolds, but I felt like, no, I know the answer, and then, well, David prayed, you dummy, maybe you need to pray too, okay. We wait prayerfully as we wait. Confident that God's timing is perfect, we wait patiently, is the second thing I see here. And it's kind of implied in the text, as I mentioned a minute ago, David has waited now some, anywhere from 12, 13, 14, 15 years maybe, God has given him a clear promise. David's been faithful to live according to that promise. And here, later on, it'll tell us that he's 30 years old before he acts. He's waited a long time. And I think, man, I have a hard time with this. (laughs) I have a hard time waiting a week. I have a hard time waiting a few days sometimes. I think back on those occasions in my life, and some of you I've waited with you, right? Right? We've kind of joked about it over the years. Gene Roz, bless, bless that brother's soul, Gene could come and sit with you in a hospital room, and he would sit there from daylight to dark and just sit there in the room with you. What a gift he was. I will be on the property with you as long as I need to be there. If it's at Duke, I'll be there in the morning, but I'm not going to be sitting in that waiting room all day with you. I'm going to get up, I'm going to walk around, I'm going to go outside. I may get up and go downstairs, I'll come back and check in. i got my phone, you've got yours. I don't wait well if it means just sitting and and passing the time. Some of you are better able to do that than some of the rest of us are. David exhibits what it looks like to wait patiently, but to wait actively. John Calvin said this, Even though David clearly knew that God had constituted him as king and that Saul had trespassed, even though the time was ripe for him to enjoy the crown, nevertheless, Calvin says, he asked God to tell him what he should do. Why? Because although he was on the way, he still knew that he could err seriously if God did not guide him. So he prayed for God to give him direction. Should I go up from this place? God said, go up. Well, where should I go, he says there in the latter part of chapter 1. And he says to Hebron. So we wait prayerfully. We wait, as it says here, patiently. But we also wait expectantly. And by that, 
this is one of those places where you need to have your study Bible or a commentary or some Old Testament study help that might help you see what is significant about God asking or commanding David to go up to Hebron. Hebron cannot be overstated. The significance of God telling David to go up to this place is huge. And we need to see that because I believe there's a direct connection to us as well. David has been in enemy territory, and now he's coming back home to Judah, but specifically he's coming to Hebron. And Hebron is the place of the patriarchs. Hebron is the place of God's covenant promises. Hebron is a place that connects us all the way back to early in Genesis, where God made this promise to Abraham that through him all of the nations would be blessed. Underline Hebron. Put a star beside it in your Bible. It is a historical spiritual marker. That God is connecting David back to Abraham through the place of Hebron. In Genesis chapter 13, we see that Abraham settled by the oaks of Mamre, which was called Hebron. And there he worshipped God. There he built an altar. In Genesis 18, it's at Hebron that the the angelic messengers come to Abraham and tell he and Sarah that they're going to have a son. It is in Hebron that Abraham buried his wife, Sarah. And that's also where Abraham is buried. And that's also where Isaac is buried. And that's also where Jacob is buried and their wives. This is the place of the patriarchs. And go up, that simple little term is used three times here. And it's not just move someplace. It is going up geographically. It's going up higher in the mountain. But it's an ascent to the throne. God is basically telling David, you are ascending to that place where I have determined you'll be a part of my eternal plan. And through you, that plan continues. It's, it's amazing that that one word, that one place has so much significance there. And Hebron is an out-of-the-way place at this point in time. It's not marked on the map that well. But this is where God's anointed king will begin his reign. All right? Limited to some degree. But that's where he begins his reign. And I couldn't help as I've kind of meditated on this this week and thought through this this week. What is it that Matthew says in the beginning of his gospel in chapter 1 and verse 1? The beginning of the genealogy, he says, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of who? Abraham. The son of David, the son of Abraham. If you go further in the New Testament, what is our connection to that? Paul writes in the book of Galatians that we are, in fact, turn to Galatians. You were close to that earlier when Jason was reading to us out of 2 Corinthians. Turn to the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Paul has just said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God when God said, I will make you the father of many nations and through you all the nations will be blessed. He believed God when God said, go up and look at the stars if you can count them. That's the number of offspring. Abraham believed God's promises. He trusted in God's promises. He waited on God's promises like his son David would later do. 
But then it says in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He goes on then to declare that the righteous live by faith, that we have been redeemed from the law and brought into grace through Christ. And he goes on to lay that out for us and then finishes the whole passage in chapter 20, in chapter 3, verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Do you see that, church? Do you see that, brothers and sisters? That God's promise to Abraham is that massive umbrella under which we receive that grace of God. And David is a part of that unbreakable chain of God's grace that leads down to you and me. And what we see here is that even in this insignificant place called Hebron, where David's reign is going to start, he's at the center of God's purposes and at the center of God's will in this out-of-nowhere place. Here's what one commentator said. Do not allow the unpromising form of the kingdom to blind you to the real presence of the kingdom. Is that not what happens in our lives so often? We don't see God's work for what it is. We don't see God's work in those little ways, in those little places. We don't see God building a kingdom and saving lives and presenting the gospel in a little place like life choices. We don't see young men and young women being discipled and introduced to the gospel through something like Trail Life or American Heritage Girls. In little insignificant places like that, a conversation tonight might be like the mustard seed of David's kingdom. Don't dismiss it because it's small or out of the way or in some way you feel insignificant. This writer went on to say, It is no trifle chemistry when Yahweh's chosen king begins to reign. By the Spirit's chemistry, this truth is what keeps many of God's servants on their feet. Amen. Scores of Jesus' disciples find most of their labor is done in the Hebron stage in which they see little of the power and the glory. But as long as they know Jesus reigns... They are content. Are we? Are we content to know that Jesus is reigning? Even in our small, seemingly insignificant places where God has placed us? We wait expectantly. And then, in this next section starting there, David hears word of what happened with Saul and the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Now, it says there in verse 4 that the men of Judah came and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. I will build on this later on. But David is anointed king publicly there for the first time over just one tribe. The the nation of Israel is depicted here as divided. And so imagine like 12 little tribal states, 12 little areas of influence and family relationships. It's not a united nation at this point in time. And David is is anointed there by the elders, by the leaders of Judah as king. And then he hears what happens with the body of Saul and what happened with the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And because David is assured of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, because David is living in the light of God's covenant, he is able to wait Not just prayerfully, not just patiently, not even expectantly, but he's able to wait graciously winsomely 
It's amazing to see how David responds to these men who could be seen as his enemies. A friend of my enemy is my enemy. Not in David's world. Notice what? They come to him and tell him what has happened. And David sent messengers to these men of Jabesh-Gilead. And he said to them, first off, he says, he, he, he commends them for their kindness. He commends them for the loyalty. And it's the same root word that we see earlier. He commends them for what they've done and just thanks them in a sense. May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and you buried him. So David is, is presenting this, this word of blessing to them, even in the light of God's covenant kindness and love. Underline that phrase there in that passage if you haven't done that or if you mark your Bibles. And I'd encourage you to mark your Bibles because that phrase there is important to recognize. He says, now may the Lord show you steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. That's covenant love. That's hesed kindness and faithfulness. How do we know that we can trust God's covenant love on us? How do we know that we can trust him to fulfill his covenant promises to us? Because he's faithful. Because he's truthful. And, and one without the other, the legs are cut out. God is a God of steadfast love and truth or faithfulness. David is basing his life on that. And he's living his life, in a sense, in a very politically unsound way in the eyes of many. Here he goes trying to make amends with those who would be seen as his enemy. And he says, may you be blessed. He sees their good. He sees what they've done well and commends them for it. And then he prays that the Lord would bless them, that the Lord would show them this steadfast love and faithfulness. May the Lord show you this steadfast love and faithfulness, he says. And then he says, may the Lord use me as a fulfillment of that promise. That's kind of what he says there, right? I will show you good. I will demonstrate to you this same kind of steadfast love and faithfulness. And in the Hebrew, it's an emphatic, I, even I. So he's putting the focus on himself. David has said, you've shown, you've shown great honor to Saul in the way you handled that situation at great risk. Now may the Lord show you steadfast love and faithfulness. And I will show you that same kind of love, that same kind of goodness. I will show you good because of what you have done. And then in verse 7, now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. So he sees good in them. He prays God's blessing on them. He promises his own blessing to them. And he says it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. You need to be strong. You need to be valiant. What David is doing here is inviting them to come into his kingdom. He's inviting them to come under his reign, to allow him to be the leader that replaces the one they had in Saul. It's an amazing overture on his part. It reminds me of a gospel overture. In that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And God invited us into his kingdom. And so there he comes demonstrating this. You know, kind of as a side, you can go ahead and note this down at the bottom in your applications. This kind of waiting is not passive. Get off the porch. Get out of the recliner. 
That's not the kind of waiting we're talking about here. It's a go out there and do something. But it's not just go out there and do anything, right? It's, it's not that at all. It is faith-filled. It is faith-focused. And again, one of the things I think is really important here is we do not know how exactly David prayed. And we don't know exactly how God gave him these answers. But here's what we do know about how God speaks and gives us guidance today. And I take this kind of point of application, and I'd, I'd, I'd refer you back to a little book that I've referred to over the years, um, a little book by Kevin DeYoung, about the will of God. How do we know what God's will is for our lives? And it's not something like, should I go out and eat Chinese or Mexican this afternoon after lunch? Well, I'll pray about it. God doesn't care whether we have Chinese or Mexican. Here's what DeYoung says. The way of wisdom means three things. Now keep this in mind as opposed to we don't know how David inquired and we don't know how David got his answers. God very well could have just spoken right to him. It could have been through the priest. It could have been through the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know. How does God speak to us today? How do we know what we're to wait on and how we're to wait? Kevin DeYoung says, The way of wisdom means three things. Searching the scriptures first, seeking wise counsel second, and praying He says, but what do we pray if we aren't asking God to tell us exactly what to do? Well, first, he says, we pray for illumination. God, open our minds so we can understand the scriptures. You ought to be writing this down or I'll post it for you, okay? Ask God to open our minds so we can understand the scriptures and apply it to our lives. Second, pray for wisdom. Because we don't, if we don't, James is clear, we don't have wisdom because we don't ask for it. And one of the ways we gain that wisdom is through the counsel of brothers and sisters in Christ who are looking at the same word and trusting the same spirit and giving us direction there. Third, we pray for the things that we already know are God's will. What does he mean by that? Well, we pray for holiness. We pray for loving kindness toward others. We pray for compassion. We pray to offer forgiveness. We pray for humility. We pray for teachability. We pray for the gospel to spread. We pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here's how DeYoung finishes this. I'll just finish with this little quote. The will of God isn't a special direction here or a bit of secret knowledge there. God doesn't put us in a maze, turn out the lights and tell us, get out in good luck. In one sense, We trust in the will of God as his sovereign plan for our future. In another sense, we obey the will of God as his good word for our lives. And in no sense should we be scrambling around trying to turn the right page in our personal choose-your-own-adventure novel. God's will for your life and my life is simpler, harder, and easier than that. It is simple. There's no secrets to discover. It is harder because we're going to be walking contrary to the world and the system of the world. But it is easier because God does not call us to something that he doesn't enable us to do. So I just throw that in as an aside, as an application for how David inquired and how David waited. This is what it looks like to wait on our king. What does it look like when we choose another king? What does it look like in the world's system of personal power and politics as opposed to what we see in the kingdom here. Well, that's what begins to unfold for us 
starting in verse 8, and really goes on for the next three or four chapters. Charles Dickens opens his novel, The Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Well, that's kind of what we got here. That's what we have here. You see, what is going on here is not, it's not just a power struggle there in this geographic part of the world back then. It is about that. It is about David's monarchy being established by God and those who oppose it. But this isn't just a difference in political parties or in military groups. This is a picture of God's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world and the conflict that inevitably comes against between those two. But it's also a reminder of how that ends. It's a reminder of how it ends. And so... As this unfolds, and I'm not going to take the time to, to read all the way through what, what's happening here. I do want us to look at this next section, just these next few verses. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army. Wait a minute. I just, I just skipped by mistake the most important word in that part of the word, part of passage. But, but, there's a contrast there that we should see and note. David is reaching out, he's, he's, he's trusting God, he's waiting, he's doing it in a winsome, gracious way. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all of Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. At the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. The math here is confusing. Because it seems to me that because David reigns seven years, seven and a half years over Judah... Seven and a half years before he actually takes the united throne of Israel. And it says here that Saul's son, they weren't all killed over on that mountain back in 1 Samuel 31. They didn't all die there. This one survived. And it says that he reigned for two and a half years. Well, some commentators say that what we see unfolding here did not happen immediately after David took the throne there or began to rule over Judah. That there's a five-year period of time in there where David is working to establish his kingdom. And, it, and, and subsequent to that, five years later, the real power that was going on in the rest of Israel, which, by the way, is not Saul's son. He's a puppet. The power is this military commander, Abner, who, by the way, was Saul's cousin. So this is not like the godfather. This is not, it's, it's, it's only business. No, this is family. This is family. Because the other main character that we see stepping on the stage here in verse 12, Abner, well, he's David's nephew. He's the son of David's sister. So we have a family issue going on here. Not just, not just military, not just political. And so we just need to recognize that and, and kind of see what's going on here. Abner places Ishbosheth 
in as a puppet king, if you will, over these tribes of Israel while David is ruling over Judah. Abner, who is also going to play a central role in David's reign in these following chapters, and 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 those who excuse me, Joab. I'm getting the names mixed up here. I got them in different colors here in my Bible. So Abner, Saul's cousin, the commander of Saul's army, goes out to this place, this Mahanaim at Gibeon. They call it the Battle of Gibeon. And Joab, who is David's nephew, along with his brothers and others of David's army, go out and they meet at this pool at Gibeon. And they come up with this idea. So there's these two armies, if you will, sitting on opposite sides of the pool. And Abner and Joab said, let's just have a little competition. Let's have a little contest, like maybe a little gladiatorial thing. You choose 12, I'll choose 12, and we'll just see who's the best. A little, you know, a little fun. The word is used to depict fun in other places. This wasn't fun. These 24 men, it says... Confronted each other. And look at verse 16. Each caught his opponent by the head, thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so that they fell down together. Therefore, the place is called Helkath Hazarim, which is the blade of the knife, or the blade of the flint, which is at Gibeon. And verse 17 says, the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Did this take long to escalate? 12 on 12, 24 lie dead. Abner flees the battlefield because his men have been soundly defeated. And Joab and his two brothers, Abishah and Asael, I know I didn't pronounce that right, but if you're a Hebrew scholar, you come correct me, okay? The three sons of Zeruah, David's three nephews, pursue him. And one of them's fast. He's the youngest, it appears, and he runs like a gazelle. Abner's older, smarter. The one pursuing him is fast and dumb. That's just what it looks like. He's running after him as hard as he can. Abner turns around and says to Asha'il, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How could I lift my face to your brother Joab? He understands what's at stake. He understands what might happen. But the young man continues to pursue him. And what commentators basically say happened here was Abner. Remember Saul is always with his his spear and his spear was stuck in the ground. Well, imagine, if you will, a spear that is sharp on both ends. One of them very, very sharp, which is the fighting end. The other, the butt end is still sharp because it was often that soldiers would just stick it in the ground. Well, commentators say that Abner turns around trying to call this guy off, saying, we don't need to go this way. And he refuses to, and he holds up the butt end of his spear, and he runs into it, and it runs him through. Most agree Abner really didn't intend to kill him. But he fell there and died where he was. And it says there in verse 23 that all who came to the place where he fell stood still. It's like everyone involved in this sees this nephew of David lying there dead, and they think, this has gotten out of hand. This has gotten way bigger than it needed to be. But you know what? They had started down that road, 
And that's where they're going. Joab and his brother, it says there in verse 24, pursued Abner, pursued him so far to this hilltop in this place called Amah. Meanwhile, all of the family of Benjamin gathers, and they have the high ground, and and that's not a good place to be. Abner calls to Joab and asks him these three questions. Look at the text there. So just imagine this, this battle has gone on. This contest turned bad, turned deadly. They fought. Many were killed. It looks like it's going to escalate even more. And in verse 26, Abner called to Joab. Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore, at least for a little while. That's, that's not the end of the story there in verse 28. Three questions are raised. It's, it's, it's interesting to, to see those. Is this really? Notice what he says there. Do you not, shall the sword devour forever? Is this the way we're going to handle everything? As brothers, is our first response to draw swords and see who's left standing? Secondly, do you not see that this is not going to end well? The end will be bitter. And it already is. And thirdly, we are brothers. How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? They are together under God's covenant at this point in time. They are fellow members of the household of Israel. And yet politics and the hunger for power and what the New Testament calls selfish ambition have raised their heads, and it's an ugly thing to see. So how do, we, how do we take this? It says that Abner and his men left that place. Joab and his men marched all night. The day broke up for them, it says, when they were at Hebron. I think the best application we can take from this portion, and in it, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Now, David is not involved in what we see going down in chapter 2. David is not a part of this. This is those who would be his advocates, be on his side, but not following his strategy, not following his path to the throne. But as I, as I look at this, I think back again on David's encounter with those men of Jabesh-Gilead. I think back on just a picture of the gospel that's there. Turn over, if you will, to the book of Romans. And as we prepare to come to this communion table in just a minute, I couldn't help but kind of be drawn here to what we're told about how gracious God is to us. About how good he is to us. About the distinctive grace of God that calls us to his table. That brings us to that place. What an amazing picture that is. 
I think about Jesus standing there and offering an invitation to all those who hurt him, those who were seeking to put him to death, and yet he's offering them to come into his kingdom. He's offering them the opportunity to come. What a picture that is of grace. It says in Romans 5, while we were still weak, I'm in verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. While we were still enemies. While we were still pursuing our own way and the ways of the world. Since, therefore, we've been justified by his blood, it says there in verse 9, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. This is a table of reconciliation right here. And God's enemies are invited. Come across the aisle, he says. Come take a place at this table. But not just on your own and not just on your own terms. Because we are enemies outside of his grace given to us through Christ. We are his enemies in our sin and in our rebellion. We are like those followers of Saul. What's crazy about that passage back there is that Saul's general, the one who is putting this puppet in place as a king, Abner. Abner was there every time Saul was there with David. He heard Saul say, I know that you will be king over Israel. He heard Saul say, I know that God will bless you. And yet he rebelled against God's king. That's us. Outside of Christ. That's us. Apart from the saving grace where we turn from our sin and trust in King Jesus. And come into that marvelous kingdom that he has for us. Where we are justified by his grace. Where we are forgiven by his mercy. Where we are given new life by his resurrected life. While we were still enemies. God offers us reconciliation and a place at the table. So as we prepare to come to this table this morning, it is there for you who have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It is there for those of us who have stopped following the prince of the power of the air and all of us followed him outside of Christ. But recognize that if you're still following him or pursuing your own way, you are following a dead ruler. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, That Christ took on flesh for us and defeated the one who has the power of death, even the devil. He has destroyed him. So I invite you by God's grace to leave the kingdom that will perish and you with it. And come into the kingdom of the son of his love. Come in by grace and know the life that comes through David's perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for this picture of what it means to wait on your good promises. 
We thank you for this picture of what it means to be prayerful and excited and expectant. And to be gracious and winsome. This picture of what it means to be on a mission of reconciliation. Thank you for that picture in David. And Father, we don't... We can see, even with bad vision, what this world around us looks like. How the rulers of this world strive and fight. And we'll see more of it over the next few chapters. But God, we pray today for your kingdom to come. For your king to reign eternally. And for your will to be done in the lives, in the hearts of each one of us. So, Father, I pray that personally for myself. And, church, I invite you to pray that personally. I invite you just for a quiet minute to do business with the Lord this morning before we come to this table. Jesus has bought and paid for your place at this table with his blood. And he calls for our obedience. He calls for us to submit ourselves to him. He calls for our undivided affection. So where that's been divided, where that personal selfish ambition has taken precedence over God's will, where that unwillingness to reconcile and offer others the grace that you've received in Jesus. Just take a second. Holy Spirit, we pray for you to look into each of our hearts. Father, we thank you for that amazing grace. I thank you for that grace that saved a wretch like me. Thank you that you've sought out or still seeking the lost. Inviting us to come, be made healed, to be made whole, to be healed. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.